just so as not to be outdone, I will start with a commercial. <laughs> I am sure that you, are, you have come across this book. And if you haven't, you should have done. If you still haven't, well, have a look at this. Don't, don't buy it. It's not for sale. It's my own copy. Do look at it. I, if Mr. Kansdale will allow me, I'll leave them somewhere there. You can have a look at it. And uh, if you want to buy one, talk to him. Um, this, as you know, is the Africa Bible Commentary. And it was written by 70 Africans, including Muggins. And um, some of the things I'll be saying in the next 40 minutes or so, uh, you will find in the commentary on Matthew in here, which I did. And um, it's a tremendous resource on one hand, and its value to me lies in that it exists. I'm a little bit disappointed with quite a lot of the content, and I will explain why that is so. You see, as I said yesterday, I touched on it, and, and my crusade, if it is a crusade, is trying to get Africans to think and write as Africans in theological matters. But a lot of what we have here is Africans thinking and writing as Westerners. Because that's, that's been our formation. So, but, but it exists. And it means in 10 years' time, when it is revised, hopefully it will be a much better foundation for what lies ahead. So have a look at uh, uh, the ABC, Africa Bible Commentary. I will leave it there during the afternoon. The other one is uh, stuff that I was talking about yesterday is all in here and more. The Human Condition is a book I wrote, published in 2006 by IVP initially, but now by Langham Global Library. And in relation to this, I will leave this Langham brochure there and just have a look at a pile of books on there. They're all books. The late John Stott had this idea of inviting people from all over the world to write on topics which up until then had been the preserve of Westerners. And he invited us all to gather together and over several years a number of books began to appear, including this one that I've just uh, shown you. But there are a lot more, and you can see the ones that are here, and almost all of them are also in French, where that's applicable. And so, um, have a look at that. This would be a fantastic gift to give to a Bible college student in Burundi, Rwanda, or, or wherever, South Africa, and so on. Now, many will have, if they were serving pastors or pastoral students, in the mid-90s, um, no, mid-noughties, that's right, 2006, 2007, two, and so on, many will have received them as a free gift. Uh, there, there was money raised by Jim Patterson and others uh, from SIM, and that has made it available. But the ones who are now studying and so on 
won't have had that opportunity. So have a look at that resource. I'll leave the magazine on, on the table there. The parable of the sower. My aim, as I have indicated, is to try and deal with the parable as, as a black African. But it is very hard. You don't appreciate how hard that is for me. When I went to, to school, uh, my first year at school ever, um, I, um, I, you know, I don't have a birth certificate. Because when I was born in northern Rhodesia, that courtesy wasn't extended to people of black skin. So my father wrote it down that my birthday is the 28th of September. But when one day I was talking to my mother about it, she says, no, surely that can't be true, she said. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, your older brother was born at the height of the dry season. You were born after the rains had started. Uh, if she is correct, then I was born in November, and my older brother was born in September. But officially, I was born in September, because that's what my father wrote down. And my brother was the one born in November. Hey, what's three months between <laughs> So I didn't have a, uh, don't have a birth certificate, which makes it very interesting, applying for official token. And when I went to school, the, uh, the, the headmaster there said, uh, oh, you've come to school, you're far too young. Because uh, all the others were big boys, bigger, much bigger boys. But he said, do this and see if you can touch your ear. Well, I was able to touch my ear. I was in. That <laughs> was the test. And, and, and I got in. Now, that year and the following year and the third year, all the studies were in Bemba. And English was a subject on the curriculum. And then when I got to standard two, as it was called, the fourth year in, in primary school, everything was taught in English, and Bemba was a subject on the curriculum. And it remained like that all the way through until I finished school and went to work and became a Christian my first year at work. And, um, and then all my theological education, all my tertiary education um, through all nations, London Bible College, Aberdeen University and London University, all through those, all my teachers are all Westerners. My mentor, including the man who led me to Christ, they're all Westerners. So all my formation has been, in terms of education, all my teachers at secondary school were all <coughs> Westerners. And therefore, it is much easier for me to think, uh, when it comes to official stuff, 
much easier for me to think as a Westerner than it is to think as an African. When it comes to theological stuff, that creates a major problem. And the major problem is, tends to happen sometimes, <coughs> I go to a funeral, and uh, there are Christians there, ministers indeed, and the person who died is a Bemba-speaking person, and the ministers are all Bemba-speaking people, and everybody there speaks Bemba. But when the time comes to preach, and they ask one of the ministers to preach, incredibly, the minister will stand up and invariably will ask for a translator. The education he's received in theology, somehow it's very difficult to translate all that into whichever language it is. So they ask for a translator. The translator is most likely to have achieved maybe secondary school education. They certainly don't know as much as the preacher does in theology or in theological things. It's an admission of failure. But it is an indication of the problem that I'm talking about. And what it invariably means is that when it comes to those difficult issues of life to do with the spirit world, to do with marriage, to do with death and all those things, a lot of the Christians operate in those areas almost as if they were not or their Christian faith didn't have anything to say about those things. Not, not everybody, but it is a major problem. We get frightened by witchcraft because we, we've grown up with witchcraft. We know the power of witchcraft. You laugh at it and think these people are superstitious. We know spirit power when we see it. And we're frightened by it. So a young deacon who's been disciplined because of some indiscretion looks at the minister straight in the eye and says to him, we shall see, and walks away. And the minister quakes in his boots. He's not sure, well, he is sure what the threat was. And he's not sure whether his faith will support him through that threat. It's these areas which undermine the credibility of the gospel. And part of the problem is that those of us who are leading in a lot of these churches haven't thought through these issues theologically in the context in which we were born. So part of what I'm attempting to do is to try and show that actually it can be done. It is possible. Very possible. It can be done. And one day I long I pray that when they do rework this document that it will be filled with insights from those areas and uh, it will then be a contribution to the nature of uh, our faith from those African cultures. Enough of that.
the parable of the sower. Now, you perhaps the most popular way of interpreting parables is what we understand as allegory. One of the best cases of allegory was to be found in, in the hands of the great St. Augustine himself and his treatment of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And St. Augustine said, the wounded man was Adam. And um, he was robbed of his, his dignity, his life nearly by Satan. So the robbers were Satan. Jerusalem was the heavenly city from which he had fallen. So the robbers represented the devil, his demons, who deprived Adam of his life with God and his intended immortality. The priest and the Levites stand for the Old Testament law, which could not save anyone from sin. And the Good Samaritan stands for Jesus Christ, who forgives sins through his blood, and the N, the N stands for the church. And yes? Can I be really cheeky, Joe? Are you talking about the parable of the sower or the prodigal son? At this moment, I'm talking about the Good Samaritan. <laughs> I will come back to the sower. I'm just showing the method of allegory. So I'll get there, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> so the two copper coins represent the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what we have here is this great man who understands salvation history. And he sees the task of interpreting the parable, this particular parable, he sees that, that task as representing, the parable represents the whole of salvation history. Now many others doing interpretations of parables and other parts of scripture use their imagination informed or uninformed from scripture and they take their, their, their views, their opinions and plow them into the word of God so that each word is supposedly to be interpreted as uh, standing for something else. We need to go back from there. As so many scholars have said, we go back from that allegorical understanding of the parables because they are stories and they, they represent something significant out of the story, not from the, my mind into the story. So, the parable then of the sower. Here we see everyday things that Jesus takes hold of. We have farming, we have vegetation, family life, hospitality, judicial processes in some of the other parables, shepherding, we have highway robbery. All these things are part, stuff that would have appeared in the newspapers of the day. 
And Jesus picks up on there. In fact, it is said uh, uh, that if you want to know what Palestinian life was like in Jesus' day, read the Gospels and particularly the parables. They have insights into the cultures of the day and uh, the things that happened there. So we have Palestinian farming methods here, which Jesus referred to. The sowing was imprecise, and, um, and sometimes the sowing preceded the plowing. It doesn't sound like the way you should do farming, but it is done and still done in other parts of the world. The man goes out or the woman goes out and they simply take the seed and scatter them. Now we need to understand that this is likely to be land that Joshua had given to that family. And so every year it is plowed. So when they come to it, it is not virgin land. They have worked on it for centuries. And so they scatter the seed and then they plow it in. And... Um, uh, and then it begins to, to, to grow and so on. We have a difficulty here because from the story, or difficulties from the story, it looks like during the dry season when nothing's been happening on the land, people have walked through and there is this hard bitten part of the ground. And all the seed that's scattered on those things, on, on that area, all those seed that's scattered is exposed to the birds. And so the birds swoop down and they pick up those seeds and eat them. When I was growing up, the first prayer that I remember was a prayer that my grandfather prayed. And my grandfather had never darkened the doors of any church at all, but he was always constantly in prayer. And he prayed to God. Uh, you may not realize this, but uh, most sub-Saharan African ethnic groups are monotheistic, whatever that means. They worship the one true God. They may do so through intermediaries, spirit beings who inhabit the space, if we think ge uh, geographically, physically, crudely, uh, between God and us. They are lords of spirits. And my grandfather used to pray, and I remember, I must have been five or six, he stood there before the planting season, and he prayed, committing the whole enterprise of planting. And the way we did planting was... In, in the sort of September, October, the men would go out and they would climb up these tall trees on virgin land and they would lop off all the branches and bring them down. Once the branches had dried, then the women would come and gather them in a big, big pile the size of this room or bigger. And then on a given day before the rain started, uh, the head of the family, in this case grandfather, would come and set the branches, the dry branches uh, alight, and uh, this big bonfire would reduce those branches to ash. And that ash was what Audrey Richards, a uh, prominent anthropologist, says was the best way ever to produce finger millet in northern Rhodesia. And uh, it's 
the, the government has banned that what we call chitemene system or slash and burn. Uh, it is wasteful. It took 25 years for the forest to recover. But once, once that ash had settled and the rains had come, then the owner of the place or the woman would come with millet seed and just scatter it all over that patch of land and then plow in the, uh, the seed. I've seen it done with my own eyes as a small boy. It's similar to the method that is described in the Lord's Supper. So as you can see, there are similarities between what went on in Jesus' culture and day and what goes on in many parts of, uh, of Africa today. But the, one of the problems is that our, our understanding of what went, went on in Palestine has come through Greece, Rome, Paris, London, and then down to us. And somehow we think that is the only pathway. If we're going to access it, we've got to go that way. And it is very hard because of the conditioning that we've had to go direct to the source and see what correlations there might be between that and us. So Jesus tells this parable. Everybody understands this is what goes on and so on. And then he begins to interpret it. But before that interpretation, well, on the face of it, it appears that there is 75% wastage. Because we have the seed on the path, we have the seed uh, on hard ground, or thin soil and hard ground beneath it, and then we have the seed that falls on uh, land that is not weeded, and therefore the thorns and thistles they take over, and then finally we have the fourth area where the, the soil has been prepared well and so on. 75% wastage? That's dreadful. Uh, what kind of a farmer would this person be? Uh, and in fact, in reading the commentaries, they all suggest that generally speaking, if there was 75% wastage, it was because the Philistines or the Midianites had come and destroyed the, the crop, other than because the farmers were careless. So it may be that we shouldn't think in terms of equal percentages when we look at what was going on. But in any case, the main point doesn't lie there. There are two points which I hope will come out. The first is the nature of listening to God's word. And the second is there will be a harvest. And that harvest will be incredible. Those are the two major points that emerge from an understanding of this parable. So how then does Jesus explain it? The, the, the disciples say to him, Lord, what does it mean, this parable that you've given to us? And uh, Jesus then says those words which we had read, which part of which are quoted from Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, 
They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. You look at that and it sounds as if Jesus is saying, I use parables so that people won't understand me. It's a bit of a hard thing to say. God who said my word will not return to me without achieving its purpose. Isaiah 59:55, something like that. So what does Jesus mean by quoting these words? As we look closely at it, part of it suggests that he says to you the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given. Or the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given. And as I listen to this, it seems to me that Jesus is saying about the parable that it the parable itself is speaking about how you hear God's word. The importance of hearing aright what the Lord is saying. One of the greatest gifts we can give to anybody is the gift of hearing, not in the physical sense, although that's important, but of hearing in order to act on it and act on it appropriately. And Jesus is saying the, the generation of Isaiah would not hear. And remember those words come from Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah had this long 40-year career. And Isaiah made it very clear. At this, well, the Lord made it clear to him at the beginning. Um, uh, and he says, who shall I, shall I send? And he says, here I am, send me. Go and say to these people, seeing without seeing, hearing without hearing, and so on and on. And Isaiah is horrified. He says, how long? How long are the prophetic words going to fall on deaf ears? And God says, until they go into exile. He was called to a ministry of failure from the surface of it. How long, he cries out, until they go into exile. So Jesus, in quoting those words, is making similar claims about his own generation. They're not going to hear. They have already chosen not to hear. They have sealed their ears. Uh, and we see them following him. Uh, I was reading this morning that, that uh, passage, I think it is in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus goes into a synagogue, and there he sees a man with a withered hand. And he says, come here, stand here. Already Mark has said they were watching him to see if he would do anything about this man's plight. So Jesus says, he looks at them, he says to this man, come here, stands there. And Jesus says um, to them, is it right on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And they say nothing. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and it was restored. And they were furious that he broke the Sabbath law. 
And they went out immediately, joined with the Herodians, and began to plan how to kill him. Is it right on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Is they couldn't see the irony of what they were doing. For them, on the Sabbath, it was good to plot to kill a man who was innocent, who had done a wonderful thing demonstrating the power of God. It is important that we hear. They had closed their ears. And the sad thing about the the Pharisees in Jesus' generation was that Their job was to read the scriptures, understand it, interpret it, and explain it to others. But the very work they are doing had closed their ears to the voice of God. And Jesus is using these parables to at least get them to the point where they think, what does he actually mean by these things? But no, their ears were closed. So in AD 70, the Romans come and raise the temple to the ground. And in 135, they return again and made it illegal for any Jewish person to ever live in Palestine. And that stood until 1948. And then the Gaza problems began. It is important how we hear God's word. My cry for Africa is that we will hear God's word aright so that God doesn't, we don't get to that point where we've closed our ears, although dealing with the word of God, but we have not closed our ears. I long that we can hear the word of God, not superficially, but in a way that is going to tremendously transform who we are, the way we think, the processes that we have built up of thinking all through the years, those processes need to be taken captive for Christ. When he says go into the world and make disciples of nations, it is nations, which is always more than just the sum total of the individuals in those countries. He's talking about their cultures, the things that make them tick the way they tick, do the things the way they do. Those are to be taken captive, transformed for Christ's sake. And that begins with listening properly, listening to God, hearing that we may hear him aright. So the Lord then uses the parables to, to this effect. But in relation to this particular parable, uh, what Jesus says, he says, you are blessed because you've got me in your midst and I will explain these things to you. And this is what the prophets of old longed for. It's been fulfilled in you. You have the secret of the kingdom of heaven in your midst so you can see these things. It took them a long time. It took them a long time. It was after he rose from the dead that, as they say, suddenly they begin to see clearly what they had been seeing but hadn't been able to see. He rises from the dead. The spirit comes upon them and it becomes clear. And there was no holding them back. They had the secret of the kingdom of God. And, you know, you have this sharing Jesus changing 
lives. You ought to add to it changing nations. <laughs> lives points seems to me to point to individuals. I'm glad Philip is here. Uh, <laughs> sharing Jesus, changing lives, transforming nations. That, in my view, would complete that, uh, never mind, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not here to, to change official CMS policy. It's the nations, it's the cultures that need to be, to be transformed. But part of that is how we hear the Lord, how we hear what he is saying. Let me show you how I hear the, the parable and, and how I understand it as a member person. There was a village. Oh gosh, my time is gone. Allow me just a few minutes. Um, there was a village. I'm going to keep the, uh, the agrarian background of the parable. So in a village, the seed had been compromised. And they were now no longer able to get the yields they had been used to. So what the chief, the village headman said, did was to say, I must go to the chief. He will help us. We have a proverb. And it says, Amano nimbuto varalondola. Now say that after me. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, brains or wisdom is seed you look for it and, but it's an agrarian proverb it speaks about when your seeds are compromised you go to look for better seed somewhere else and the same applies to wisdom so the chief says we have a proverb it says if your seed is compromised go and find it somewhere else so he's, he calls four people. The first person he calls is one who would say everything he hears goes in that ear and out through the other ear. He doesn't listen in the deepest sense of that word. Doesn't matter what instructions they're told. It's what somewhere else where in the Gospels it says it's like throwing your pearls before the swine. And this person is like, but he is called. Somehow, the chief calls him. Then he calls somebody who we say has a different stomach. Now, I'm using Bemba expressions here, which may sound tremendously strange, awfully strange to you, but that's the way a lot of things sound to me when I hear them. So, somebody with a different stomach. Now, the different stomach means... What I'm saying is one thing. What's in here is very different. It's the Greek word hypocrites, originally hypocrite we use now, which initially simply meant you put on a mask and say something else, you take it off and say something else, use another mask and say something else. So it could be three characters in one. Somebody with a different stomach. He nurses a grudge, which he never speaks about, but it is deep down inside him. So he comes along. The third one is the person who lives for the next uh, for the next kick as it were. So he's always looking out for where it's where there is a fun. 
And that's where he'll be found. When the beer finishes there, he goes to the next place and so on. So he's the third person. The fourth person is a good man. Out of him comes good value. So those four characterizations, did you find them? These are traditional characterization of people in Bemba culture. So the chief says, friends, we have a problem. Uh, or the headman says, we have a problem. I want you to go to the chief to go and get some seed. So off they go. They go to the uh, chief's palace. They bow and they prostrate and they offer their greetings. And the chief sat with his nobles on one side and his wives on this side. And they come here and they bow and they greet him. And he says, what business have you brought? And they explain to him what their headman had said. And he says, okay, you spend the night, come tomorrow, and there will be a big basket of seed for each one of you to take back. They go off to rest. While they were in that meeting, the one without ears had spotted amongst the chief's wives a very beautiful woman. And in his mind, he says, I'm not going to sleep tonight until I commit adultery with that woman. So he found out which her house was, and somehow he makes his way into there, sleeps with her, the indiscretion he discovered, and in the morning, the chief cuts off his head. One down, three to go. The guy who, had, um, who loved where it's at, he heard there was drinking over there, and because he's a guest, it's all free. He's a guest of the chiefs. So he goes and drinks, and then from there he goes somewhere else. He's forgotten all about why he came. Two, two days later, he realized, oh, I came here for a purpose. Comes to the chief and says, too late. You should have come the next day. Two down. Third one, the one with the, uh, the, the, the different stomach, uh, he and the, the good man, they come together, they pick up their baskets, and they set off. On the way, the one with a different stomach says to the other man, you walk on ahead, I need to relieve myself. I'll catch up with you. And uh, he goes out another path, and that's the last anybody ever heard of him. He nursed a grudge against the headman, and this was the way to get at him. Three down. But the fourth person delivered his basket of, of uh, seed and saved the village from certain hunger. So here is a Bemba way of characterizing that there was this waste in the same way that Jesus had characterized the four different soils. So I contend in my understanding that the parable of the sower, which we use evangelistically to think well, how, how prepared is your heart, and there is a very good point in that, but only in the sense how prepared is your heart to hear God's word. Because if you hear it, then there will be this tremendous harvest. And the harvest indicates both character, that capturing of the things that have made the kind of person I am, but also bringing others into the kingdom of God. It is possible. This is a rudimentary, elementary uh, attempt to understand the parable as a bemba. 
built on the work that has been done by the great scholars and so on. But it is a beginning, and we need to be able to think in those uh, categories, thought categories that are traditional and local, and in order to bring out uh, the wealth of the parables for the people amongst whom we work. My time is up. I do apologize. God bless you. Thank you, Joe. I think we all need to pray for the hearts to really listen in the, in the deepest meaning when we're hearing the word of God.